This week we have Jen Wharton with us. Jennifer is a low breath specialist based in New York City. Though getting her start classically, Jen has deep roots in jazz, commercial, chamber, and Broadway music. These days, Jen can be found where we all are, at home. But usually she's performing in West Side Story on Broadway and has also held positions at Beautiful, the Carol King musical, Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, Jekyll and Hyde, Scandalous, Wonderland, 9 to 5 and Curtains, King Kong, as well as performing as a sub in over a dozen other Broadway productions. She's also leading her trombone forward ensemble, Bonegasm, that has recorded its first album and is a recipient of the Women's Funk Grant for Media, Music, and Theater that's going to help her record her second record, which is titled Not a Novelty. Jen is a member of two multiple Grammy-nominated ensembles, Darcy James Argues Secret Society and the Alan Ferber Big Band, she has also performed on the Grammy-nominated cast albums for the Gershwins' Porgy and Bess, 9 to 5, the musical, and Curtains, the musical, as well as the Grammy-winning recording of Beautiful, the Carol King musical. On top of that, she's performed and or recorded with ensembles including the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, the Dizzy Gillespie All-Star Big Band, Ken Kaplowski Big Band, Miggy Augmented Jazz Orchestra, Diva Jazz Orchestra, Arturo O'Farrell and the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, Birdland Big Band. It's the Ein Inserto Big Band Jazz Orchestra, right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Woody Herman Orchestra, Terraza Seven Big Band, John Yao and his 17-piece instrument, Walking Distance, South Florida Jazz Orchestra, New Alchemy Jazz Orchestra, Stephen Five Key Big Band, and the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop. She's also currently teaching bass trombone at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Welcome, Jen. So good to have you. How have you been doing this quarantine? I have been trying to stay busy. Um, I alternate between uh, being super productive and being not productive at all. I maybe played a total of an hour over the last four days because I was trying to learn something. So I became <laughs> obsessed with it and didn't touch my horn for four days. And uh, it doesn't matter because nothing matters anymore. <laughs> You've been doing the question of the day with your husband, right? That's oh, been so funny. It's very, so for those of you who don't know, I'm married to John Fedchak, who is a pretty good trombonist. And he reluctantly did the very first one and then he got way into it. And so he's written the, there's, we have a theme song now. And that fe also features me singing, although I sound like a chipmunk on it. So it sounds more, you know, funny, but then we have sound effects. Started learning of the thing I was learning was a video editing program. And I, I've been using it to do question of the day, but he's so dry that it's really like, you know, I'm, I'm the, uh, the talker and he's the, uh, the dry guy in the, you know, in the duo. So it's, it's been really fun been fun to spend so much time with him because he's usually on the road or I'm working so if he's home I'm usually not here but we've been having it's been a I, I hate to use the word blessing because I'm not very religious but it's been so nice to be able to spend time with someone I love so good to have you on the stream as well thank you for giving us your time oh thank you for asking me it's a uh, big shoes to fill after after uh, you know the other episodes <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had some killing people on here. That's exactly why we wanted to have you on. So we had a bunch of submissions for questions and then just stuff that Chris and I would love to talk to you about. So are you ready for some talking? Always. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about Bonegasm and how you started with Bonegasm? Sure. Well, um, I, like I said in my bio, I, I come from the classical scene and it's basically just because I didn't realize bass trombone could be an improvising instrument. It just didn't come up at any point. Um, so 
I came up classically, but I always played in big bands and everything. And my dream once I graduated from New England Conservatory was to have a trombone quartet, but because I have a very low sense of self-esteem, I was like, no one wants to play with me. So I just never did it. And playing in Alan Ferber's big band, he has a tune called North Rampart and it's a gorgeous tune. He recorded it first with his non-ed and then with his big band. And I said, for some reason, that tune, I wanted to learn how to improvise over it. And so I said, I'm gonna do that. I asked him to arrange it for trombone quartet and then asked him to rearrange it for trombone quartet with rhythm section. And that was the very first tune that Bonegasm had. And I did, like, it was the first time that I approached improvisation from a place of love instead of fear. I love the tune so much that I wanted to learn how to play it. That said, I think Bonegasm, it's always been less about players, although everyone in the band is killing. Um, but I never wanted it to be all about me. I wanted it to be a vehicle for people to fall in love with the trombone again. You know, the trombone used to be a really popular instrument. And now it's kind of an afterthought in many groups, unless the leader is a trombone player. And I play a lot of big band music, so I, I hear how the majority of people write for trombone. And I was like, you know, they don't know what a beautiful trombone sound is. They don't know that a trombone can play soft. They don't know that a trombone can play lyrical. So it was partly why I formed Bonegasms, because I wanted to commission composers to write for this beautiful instrument. And if they could feature the bass trombone, that would be awesome too. But through that, I have gotten into more improvisation reluctantly, because I've never wanted to be like a hot dog. I've never wanted to be someone jamming all the time. It just wasn't me. I, I mean, you know, people that do it, do it well, and I have mad respect, but I didn't want that to be what this band was about. And I, honestly, I, you know, you guys can play circles around me, but Every time I start to feel bad about it, my husband, who has been my biggest cheerleader, he, he says, you know what? If you can play something beautiful, it's valid. It's a valid statement. So yeah, what I play might be simple, but if it's pretty, who cares? Someone might enjoy it. You know, I, I, if I enjoy playing it, which sometimes I do, <laughs> most of the time I do it out of, I'm, I'm doing it out of fear. I'm just sitting up there just counting the seconds till it's over. <laughs> but it's been such a luxury to have the ability to dip my toe into it. Maybe, maybe I'm up to my knee now into it. And talking about switching from classical to jazz, I never really felt like I switched. I feel like I've been the same player the whole time and it was just in there and didn't have a way to come out. And now I'm mm. kind of finding the way for it to come out. And Bonegasm has been that for me. I really like how you put that. Um, another thing that we'd love to hear a little bit about, you have this catchphrase that I know we all love, which is like balls. So can you talk just a little bit about balls and what that means to you? Because I know it's actually really, really deep. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, it started, one, I'm, I'm a pretty crass person. I mean, you could probably tell that just from talking to me for five minutes. I'm, I'm pretty crass. And I, I owe that to, I had a very kind of, uh, my, my dad has a very crass sense of humor, which I inherited, but I also grew up in a time coming up in the bass trombone world, trombone world, music world, surrounded by dudes, surrounded by middle-aged dudes and kind of learning how to hang in that world without being sexually harassed, but also not being just written off for being, you know, too sensitive. You know, that's a that's a completely different, very deep conversation. Mm -hmm. But I kind of just found this this place where I could sit, my persona could be where I could just be the crass person and I could 
tell jokes that were dirtier than than everybody else and and uh and they wouldn't be intimidated by me being a chick you know it was just kind of like oh and jen is also a chick and uh someone said that they were gonna write balls the musical years ago it was 2007 and i it just tickled me i was like that is hilarious so i started saying it all the time and it, it's not just in music it, like extended when i was training for triathlons and stuff my whole triathlon team called me balls you know and then like the actresses on shows i was doing called me balls and I'm just like oh yeah sure that's I'll answer to that that's fine but it's just kind of letting your balls hang out whatever that might be and of course I'm not talking about testicles I'm just talking about like let your freak flag fly like be strong be unapologetic and that's what I hope to be every time that I play I don't always get there but that's what that's what a you know balls means to me could you talk a little bit more about how the scene has changed since you started how long have you been in New York specifically so I moved back here I came here for a grad school which did not go well aside from that I moved back here January 2005 so I've been here uh, I guess this is I'm in my 16th year now and the scene here was actually much friendlier than where I came from came from the Bay Area and I can't tell you the amount of heinous stuff that was said to me out there. And it, it might have been just like, you know, fewer players, few, let, much less work. And so for me to be getting any gigs of notoriety or getting hired above somebody else really pissed people off. So um, I had to deal with that. And like friends saying stuff to me, um, you know, who'd you blow to get that gig? And I hate to say that. <laughs> on a live stream. I don't know who's listening, but those are some of the awful things that was said to me. And that's not even the worst of it. There are people that have much worse stories than I do. But for when I came to New York, it was actually like a breath of fresh air because people seem much more accepting of everyone. Mm. Um, the trombone community specifically is very friendly. Um, and if you're a good player, there's room. And I remember Sarah Giacobino said it, you, you know, no matter how you play, you're going to find your crevice to exist in, you know, in New York, which it's nice because there's, I mean, it's not that there's too much work or anything, but it's just that you can find your people and you can find how to make it work here. And that's definitely been true. And I, I was lucky. I came here with a lot of Broadway experience and I knew some people. So that's how I got into Broadway so fast. But in terms of the female thing changing, just more people playing bass trombone, trombone in general, and being respected, I just noticed the younger people respect their female peers much more than the older people in general. And it actually helped me initially because I came here and I was the chick. I was the chick trombone player. And so I remember Becca Patterson and Jen Hinkle moved here like right around the same time. And I had this total, it was right around when I formed Bonegasm. And funny because I had this like come to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, who am I if I'm not the chick trombone player? And I remember talking to Ingrid Jensen. She said, we'll find something that's your own. You don't have to be the chick trombone player. You can be whoever you want to be. So who do you want to be? And Bonegasm, I'm the leader of Bonegasm now. But uh, now, and, and, and you, Gina, you and Chris moving here and Reggie, like, and everyone's really playing. And that totally lit a fire under my butt to say, you know, I can do more than I'm doing. So why not? If not now, when? <laughs> can you talk about your experience with imposter syndrome and what you do to combat it? Yeah, well, I, I think um, 
I know most of my women friends in and out of music have felt this on some sort of level. And I think some of my guy friends too, they don't talk about it as much, but just not being able to accept compliments because you don't think you deserve them. Not being able to enjoy the accolades or awards that you've been given. Um, any good thing that happens to you because you don't think you deserve them. You think you're fooling everybody. You think it's just, it's just a matter of time before someone finds you out. And I've just accepted that that's part of my personality. That's always going to be there. It might be part of the driving force that makes me practice or makes me try and to try and like tamp it down I think would be bad for me but I just try to yes that voice is in there but I try to also have the voice that says okay I wouldn't be here if someone didn't think I should be you know what I mean and if someone's always got to do the gig someone has to do the gig so why not you Dave Ridge San Francisco Opera used to say that to me Someone's got to get the gig, so why could why shouldn't it be you? And that's why I, I kind of don't get butthurt, you know. I've been not kicked out of bands, but I've been not hired for the next gig, and I see who gets hired for the next gig, and I'm like, well, maybe they didn't eat, like, what I brought, and they like what this other person brings to the table. So, well, it hurts a little, yes, but I can understand, like, artistic choices, you know. You want to, you know, if a one bass remote player doesn't flip your skirt up, then the next one might. So, I always think of it that way. Like, there's another voice in there saying, you have things that you do well, and if it's not this gig, it's the next gig. That's powerful. When I first came into the city, the first show that I went to see was to go see you play Bonegasm at Silvana. So, I've been there, oh. like, a week or something. Do you know that Reggie was at our first gig? Really? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that might not have been the first gig but uh, that you came to, but Reggie was at our very first gig, which I wow. thought was funny. Yeah, that was my first time ever meeting him. Wow. I'm wow. so thankful that I hadn't yet listened to his videos <laughs> before, because <laughs> he was like right in front. <laughs> You keep saying that you're still at the beginning. You are you gave yourself credit. That's the most I've ever heard where you say now you're knee deep in. But at first it was really nerve wracking for you. How, how did you deal well, with that? I have to say, um, I've made my, I've made John, my husband, promise me never to let me sound stupid. I am scared to death to do this because there's so many, especially in New York, there's so many people that do improvising well. You know, they're amazing. They know all the licks. They've been to all the jam sessions. They lead their own bands. They write their own music. But does that take away from what I offer with my band? I don't think it does. And that's the thing that I have to go back to a lot sometimes is that, yeah, I might not be able to do that, but I also don't, I don't want to. Like when I started learning to improvise, you know, I was 40 when I really tried to learn and you know I spent my time trying to be a classical musician um shedding the excerpts in the practice room and I am so far behind people you know that have been doing this for years I feel like it's an insult for me to get up and blow chunks through my horn on a D flat blues when I'm sitting next to like Jeff Miller or something you know what I mean I don't think anybody benefits from me performing that. So I like to keep my world is ever expanding in terms of improvisation, but uh, I like to keep a tight control on it, which hopefully will change once I get more comfortable. But, you know, I force myself to improvise and I do it with my band because I know what's coming and I can practice what's coming. But like I said, I don't want to be a hot dog in front of, you know, playing tunes with John. Hell no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I like the role that I've done in a big band for so long. And, and some of my favorite players never improvised. George Roberts, 
George Flynn. Proviance does improvise. I have not heard it a lot live, but I know he does it. Dave Taylor obviously improvises, but it's a different thing. It's the Dave thing. <laughs> but there hasn't been, for me, a, a lot of people I could look up to doing it. So now to take 17 steps back in my playing ability, like I can't play in time all of a sudden when I try to improvise. I can't, uh, my sound goes out the window. It's really hard as a working professional musician to try and take all those steps back to like basically where you guys probably were in junior high or high school and being a grown ass woman trying to do this. It's hard. It's hard for my ego. So that's why, you know, you don't see me doing it more. And actually before Bonegasm started, I, um, I only got asked to do it maybe once a year. So it wasn't really something that was on my radar. I mean, now it is. And now I work on it. So there you go. What was the one time a year? It would, it would usually be Alan Ferber's band or uh, one time I got to blow with Claudio Roditi and it was, uh, it was Mike Dace, Rob Edwards, me, and I can't remember who was playing the other trombone part. But I remember when I first started, because I didn't know that this was going to happen, and Claudio asked me to, to do it and I started playing, and I hadn't, I hadn't improvised in like 10 years. And he's like, do you know what key we're in? R.I.P. <laughs> it sounded better at the gig. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. This feels like a good time. You have a video that I you do. have yet to premiere. Called Bongasmo. Bongasmo. Thank you. 
that in there because it was really good for anybody who wants to check out the full video yourselves or to check out any other videos that jen puts up make sure you follow her on youtube make sure you gotta make subscribe i have to make that that link live sorry it's not live yet (laughs) well you subscribe and you check the alerts then you will get an alert when it goes live (laughs) say ring that bell ring that bell And uh, we wanted to actually congratulate you. We talked about it just for a second earlier, but you just won the Women's Grant for Media, Music, and Theater for your new record, right? Yeah, I was one of 94 people, 94 women or women identifying that got a grant. And it's especially now uh, with the quarantine, basically, and I eat up all my savings, it's going to help a lot. But it means that I can pay the guys, you know, what they're worth. It means we can take our time when we're uh, recording. It means we can be comfortable instead of trying to, get everything out in one day. So I'm really excited. And it means that I can pay the composers what they're worth. I'm just super, like, uh, you guys mentioned Ayn and Sarah. She's been a longtime friend. I went to junior college with her in uh, California. We both went to New England Conservatory. She was a protege of Bob Brookmeyer. She now teaches uh, full-time at Berkeley College of Music, and she's writing a tune for me. Wow. And she's amazing, and Carmen Staff, and Manuel Valera wrote, and uh, of course you heard Mike's tune. And Alan and John are also writing. Um, it's funny because the first tune they both wrote was both in the same key, both in three, four, and both featured each other. So I don't think we're recording those, <laughs> but it's been so much fun. And like you can see, the results are amazing. And I feel like bonegasm at my you know biggest dreams for it is that it's going to be more than the sum of its parts. Even though the sum of its parts is amazing, I just want it to be you know fun. And yeah, it's good music, but it's it's not just trombone music. I don't listen to that and think, oh, that's a good trombone band. I think that's good music. You know, mm-hmm. and that's my goal. Can you talk for just a second about the title of the record? Not a novelty. It comes from, I believe it was Dan Belowski wrote 
a review for All About Jazz. He writes for a lot of publications, but I think it was his All About Jazz review for my first album said, well, from afar, this might seem like a novelty. The music argues against it. And that just stuck with me. I was like, I feel seen, you know? And I've since met him and he's a lovely man and, and he did dig the music and he's not a trombone player. So that meant a lot to me. So I wanted to call it not a novelty because I just don't want to make trombone music. I, I want to make music that people want to listen to regardless of their instrument. We just, and that's actually been the biggest compliment that I've received from gigs. People come to these live gigs and say, you know what? It took me a while to realize there's four trombones playing. And I think part of that is due to Everybody has such a different voice. My voice is is completely different from John's. And even John, like the way he plays lead trombone is much different than the way he solos. And Nate, not a lot of people know about Nate Mayland, but he can do anything on the trombone. And then of course, Alan Ferber. Who doesn't know? I mean, everybody knows Alan Ferber and he's, he's amazing. And then you talk about the rhythm section guys who've played with everybody. So it's, it's just like, I get so excited when talking about my band because they are what brings the music to life and what they make me sound good. So, <laughs> and you know, not a novelty. It's not just bass trombone music. It's not just trombone music. That's a really powerful title. You've done a lot of shows. You've played at Birdland. The show, uh, the first show I went to was at Silvana, but you guys have been going around. You've been doing classes at universities, going in as guests. Yeah. Amazing. For anybody else who would like to keep track of, I know right now nothing is happening. <laughs> yeah, you can see everything canceled, canceled, canceled. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. We were supposed to uh, go to, actually, there was supposed to be a big, big band festival in uh, California this weekend, and so many people were supposed to be in California, including me, and then I was going to have some gigs out there, so we made this video instead. Everybody should go to jenniferwharton.com. The way your YouTube is Jennifer Wharton. YouTube.com slash Jennifer Wharton. Right here, you have the subscribe button to keep track of all the stuff that's going on, so everybody should go there, find all the stuff hear all the music, subscribe to YouTube, make sure you're getting notifications when the videos go live because it seems like lots happening online. Actually, we mentioned this a little bit before we started talking about the industry changing. Yeah, so I've, I've had a lot of conversations with my husband, with other musicians, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to do this online thing and acapella this and Final Cut Pro and uh, learning logic and everything. Everyone wants to put content out, wants to remain relevant, especially with social media. And... I almost wish that this had happened without social media because my husband brought this up and it actually gave me pause because our people, you know, everybody's making all this online content. Is this going to be the way that we're making music from now on? No one's going to go into a studio. Everybody's just going to send tracks. That's so clinical in the way of, and, and we've all done it. Like I've, I've done a big, there's a guy in uh, New Zealand that's done a whole big band album that way. And yes, you can do it. And yes, you can get good results. But we all as musicians want to be playing in the same room. But are people that are investing in music going to want to continue to invest in music when they see, hey, the quality isn't that bad. Hey, the, you know, the average person isn't going to know the difference. That's mm -hmm. something to worry about. And yeah. I've, I've seen a few articles about it online. It's just not just musicians. There are people who are just creatives that are worried. Okay, you're putting out all this stuff and yeah, it might be quality, might be good, but what are you saying? Are you saying it's not worth anything? Are you, it's really hard. It's a hard thing because we all want to remain relevant and we all want to make music. I cried in my kitchen the other night because I missed making music with people and a bunch of us are doing all these things for free. It's something to consider. Are we devaluing 
ourselves. And I'm saying this as I just put out a video. <laughs> you know, I, I did pay my guys something, but it's not, it's not definitely not what they're worth. It's just something to consider, you know. Don't get too good sitting <laughs> by yourself. That's what I'm worried about. I think we all of musicians have been have been really struggling just not having like physical contact and music making with other people. I mean, yeah. I sit in this basement all day and just, you know, plunk away at the trombone trying to play, but like, it's not the same. No, and it shouldn't be. And people should miss us. People should miss this from their lives. And I think that's what some people that were writing about were saying, like, don't make any music and let people just sit there and suffer without music for a minute and see how they feel then, you know? Everybody wants to cut the arts is the first thing. But when it's gone, it's a heinous existence, right? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. It's just, you know, when you brought it up before, it really it really hit me. And I, I don't have a response to that because it, the industry is changing. And yeah. it's true. You don't. That's a double-edged sword, too, because we also want to make music. So yeah. it's also making us suffer if we don't create. Yeah. But then if we continue to create, it devalues it. And so it's like a... Yeah, I know. I know. And... I can't tell you how excited I was just to hear my band play together, even though it was in this false way, but it just made me so excited for what all the stuff that's coming that I know is coming after everything is over. And Gina, when I listened to your big band arrangement, one, it's the first time I've ever heard your writing, but two, it was like everybody who's making music right now from, uh, you know, all the shows that are putting out videos of the singers and the bands that are putting out corn tunes. It means a lot and it's feeding our souls, but let's not forget when this is over and we go back to normal life, we can't have this be the normal that we go to. We have to reinforce that that music is important in, in your life, so... We can entertain people. I, I don't know what the answer is. I want to entertain people. And this whole project gave me a sense of accomplishment in, you know, this horrible time where not, every day is the same, <laughs> you know? Yeah, just finding little ways to survive this musically is going to be the name of the game. What do you think you're going to do different afterwards, musically and personally so? Uh, well, like I said, the time that I've spent with my husband has been so nice. It's really, I mean, not a lot of people know John in the way I do because he's a, he's what I call a gentle giant, um, but he is the best human on the face of the planet. Um, and I'm going to get teary because he is, there's nobody who's better than him and he is my favorite person. And uh, for me to get to spend all this time with him in one chunk has been so awesome. And I fall in love with him more each day. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> to get all girly um but i think i'm not going to take that for granted as much uh as musicians we never say no to gigs and we're taught that from a very early age and sometimes spending that time with people that you love matters more at a certain point you're going to be able to make those choices like when you're worried about paying your rent you can't um but right now i'm being forced into making you know choosing my husband and it's been awesome even though i'm worried about money you know we may not be back to work until September, if then. And who knows if I'll have a show to go back to when, when this is all over. Yeah. But I'll still have my amazing husband. And that's what's important. And, and getting into the horn and getting able to, being able to practice. Not that I do practice as much as I should. Not that any of us do. But having it available to me, having that time is a luxury. I tell students this all the time that you will never have as much time to practice as when you're in school because you're going to have to pay your rent. Uh, so 
you know, having it now is, is a luxury and it's something that I haven't had in a long time. So I am grateful for that. I'm also scared shitless. So, you know, and I'm, I'm better off. I have savings. I had, I had a savings for my album before I got the grant. So that'll last me a little bit, but I'm, I'm worried about what happens after. And I'm worried for all my friends that don't have that cushion. That's a scary time. Stay safe and wash your damn hands. <laughs> we, we know that it's, it's obviously like sort of on hiatus right now, but can you talk just a little bit about playing on Broadway is like? Uh, okay. So I never, I love my job, especially this new show. And it's easy to love a show in the beginning because everything is new and you're not sick of anybody yet. But you know, the person you're sitting next to, I sit next to James Burton at West Side Story, who is the nicest guy. <laughs> you know, he never has a bad word to say about anybody. I love him to death, um, but he's like this far away from me. So it's not comfortable. And especially in the age of the coronavirus, it's not safe. So I can understand why they say, yeah, nobody can work. But under normal conditions, you know, if you're working with completely pleasant people, this amount of distance still will get old after a while. Luckily with West Side Story, it hasn't. But the longest run I ever had was four and a half years. And I would not know that I played the first half of the show just because I was so dead inside, you know? And that's, that's the biggest challenge is to remain engaged with the show while you're playing it. That is the biggest challenge. If you're lucky enough to have a show that runs, because I've done plenty of shows that did not run, you know, there was not time to get sick of it because it was closed before you could. So Broadway is a mixture of, if you're lucky enough to get a chair, which it's all word of mouth, you're lucky enough to get a chair. You have to make it through eight services in the beginning. So it's usually eight rehearsals before you officially have the chair because they can fire you at any time for any reason. So that's, that's uh, a lot of stress. After that, there's just a lot of stress depending on the production of uh, you know tech and previews and everybody wants things a certain way. And can you do this? And there's a lot of minute changes. And once the show is frozen, um, not the show Frozen, but uh, they call it Frozen when not, no more changes are going to happen. Then you can kind of relax and then mm. you can kind of take off. And a lot of the older cats would take off as much as possible, one, to keep up their musicality because you will get show chops if all you play is your show. So they would keep up their musicality. Uh, recording sessions when there were a lot they would do a lot of those and but take off as much as you can like i would take off to do a 20 dollars big bang gig just to have something else to do as long as i could afford to do so but having the paycheck awesome having health insurance awesome i almost value health insurance more than i value the paycheck at this point um and having a locker in midtown that is invaluable i firmly believe that the union should install some lockers for like day day lockers in their, <laughs> their building they can make extra money because having a locker in midtown is is like priceless but uh if you let it become a death sentence i've said it to, to a couple of people it can, having a show can be called the golden handcuffs because you don't want to take off if you're going to lose money. But if you don't take off, you're going to lose your mind. But if you don't look at it that way, it's, it's much healthier. You talk about how it's a lot of word of mouth getting on a show. How does that start, like the subbing process into getting your own show? How did that start for you? For me, I got my very first, so I'm, I said I was from the Bay Area. I'm from, from outside San Francisco, Pittsburgh, California. What, what, P-Town? No H on Pittsburgh. But I got my first show because I met a guy doing a Chinese funeral in San Francisco. 
And he heard me play and he was like, hey, do you want to do this show? It's a six week run. It was Wicked before it went to Broadway. And I was like, okay. And I did it and it, I was like, this show sounds dumb. <laughs> Goes to show you what I know. Uh, <laughs> it was great. I learned so much on that run and my handwriting is still in the book at the Broadway show now. Like I, that was the second show I started supping on uh, nice. when I moved to New York. But uh, then the guy said, he would mention in passing, oh, Lion King is coming to town. I have to find someone to play C-Tuba. And I'm like, I totally do. I didn't even own a tuba at the time. I did play tuba. I did not play C-Tuba. But I went to the store and I bought the C-Tuba. And I had to call my credit card company and get my limit raised to buy this tuba. <laughs> I practiced. And then he, he uh, made me come play for him. He was like, okay, you can have the gig. And it was a year-long gig in San Francisco. I mean, it wasn't like I'd never played tuba before. I'd played a lot of tuba in college. I just didn't own one. But I was young enough and dumb enough to be like, yeah, I totally do that. You know, and that'll bite you in the ass if, if you're not careful. But at the time, being young is, is uh, on your side when you do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> at my age now, I don't think I'd do that. I have a question. This is from me. What made you move from the West Coast to the East Coast? And then can you talk a little bit about what the difference in music is from each coast? Well, the first time I came out here was for grad school. I got into the orchestral performance program at Manhattan. I had a terrible experience like two months in, but I stayed for the full year just to give them the middle finger, just to piss somebody off because <laughs> I'm stubborn. Uh, but then the second time when I moved back, it was because I'd met a guy when I was in grad school. We started dating. He, he was out on the West Coast with me for a year and then we moved back to his apartment that he kept that was stupidly low rent. So it was a good situation. And I, I had a day job for a long time and I got my first show while I was doing my day job. So I did them both for six months, which was That's crazy. Yeah, I was working like over 60 hours a week. I would like pay money to go to get a massage just so I could fall asleep on the table. I was really tired. That's crazy. Yeah, but um, so uh, the difference I would say is out in California, um, there is less work. And you have to drive a lot farther to get to the work. We are really lucky here. I have bad road rage, so I'm very happy that I can take the subway most places. <laughs> Actually, it's a lot better now that I don't have to drive so much. But, you know, coming from where I lived in Pittsburgh, it was only 45 miles to get to downtown San Francisco, but it could take two hours or more. It was a lot. Sorry, wow. Wally, drink my beer. Oh, we actually have a question about that. Somebody's asking you, what are you drinking? <laughs> this is, okay, I'll tell you. Finback is one of my favorite breweries in Queens. I live in Astoria, Queens, Kingdom of Queens, ladies and gentlemen. This is a Finback. They do delivery for all the quarantined New York City people. This is their Sun Shower Double IPA. I like them. I get nervous when I do these things and I have diarrhea of the mouth, so this will calm my... <laughs> One thing I'd love to talk to you about just for a moment, because we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, last year when I was a student at MSU, you came in and did like a really, really great masterclass. The one thing that I love was that everybody just like sat down 
and you were just like, all right, none of you are classical and none of you are jazz. You all play trombone. You're all going to have to play in an orchestra and you're all going to have to play in a big band gig. Can you talk just a little bit about like being someone who plays basically whatever they want? I play whatever people will pay me to play. <laughs> whatever they ask me to play, honestly. <laughs> Except for the, you know, very few people that are lucky enough to get the gig that they want exactly. We just have to make money. So, you know, when you get that call for the orchestra gig that you're like, I, I'm not really the right call for this, but I have to eat. So you have to make it work. And um, it was funny because I uh, participate in this uh, professor's choir at the Southeast Trombone Symposium, which is very classical driven. The guys that run it, Colin Williams and Nathan Zagonk and uh, Brad Palmer, who's at Columbia State University in Georgia, they have us down, all these teachers down from around the country and we play in this professor's choir. It's awesome. It's like, I get to geek out for two days playing trombone choir, but they had john down to do a master class and stuff and someone had said why they have this jazz guy here and i'm like you think if you win a gig you're not gonna have to play a pops orchestra you know gig the idea that you're never gonna need to know how to swing is a false idea you know it's, mm. it's wrong you're gonna have to know how to swing and you might want to learn how to do it well because that could open up doors to you that you know may not have been open before don't put yourself in a box this runs contrary to what a lot of diehard classical or diehard jazz or diehard whatever will say but if i had put myself in a box which i sort of did with improvisation but if i put myself in a box stylistically I never would have been here i actually remember saying i never wanted to play broadway music but once i started like oh you can make money doing this because the first First show gigs I did paid $35. So yeah. I was like, this sucks. What's the like most unusual gig that you've had to play? Like most surprising, I guess we could say. So I did a lot of Chinese funerals in the Bay Area. And there's some in New York, but I've never done them. But I, my record was five in one day. I did five Chinese funerals. Wow. And they hire like people to cry at the funeral. Oh. Or, yeah, you have to wear these hats. I think it came from Hong Kong, like British dignitaries. Brass bands would play yeah. for Chinese dignitaries, but it was in a morgue. So you'd smell all the embalming fluid and stuff. It's weird. <laughs> so Green Street, Green Street Mortuary in San Francisco. The weirdest gig in New York is I got paid to play foghorn sounds on tuba at a gala for BAM, I believe. Jennifer Lawrence was a speaker and some famous director. And I was on this like huge pillar. And every time the light shined on me, I made this foghorn sound. That was it. That was all I did. <laughs> What's the most exciting gig that you've ever played? I gotta say, playing with my band is is a level of excitement that I haven't had. I, it would just, it's just, you can't, because everything is on me. Like I have to get all the music there and pay everybody and and once and so i'm like hey i did that thing like i organized it it happened people came you know it feels like such a it, it's a very rewarding feeling that one that i hadn't experienced before i had my own band so uh that was awesome but i will say this i remember one specific uh, darcy gig we were playing the jazz standard and someone who i really respect my friend mark small came and he gave me a compliment and I don't take compliments well. <laughs> we talked about this earlier, <laughs> syndrome. Yeah. I mean, I'll sit there to your face, I'll take the compliment, but um, you know, inside I'm dying. But he gave me a compliment and I will remember it always. I actually like saved the email because he was sitting in the audience and he used to sit right in front of me in Darcy's band. And so he was like, 
you know, when you're in the band, I never realized like how hard you're working and how good it sounds or it's something, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing. I have no idea what he said anymore, but it meant so much to me coming from him. I was like, okay, I trust you and I trust that comment. And I saved it because that's something I can always keep in my pocket if I am feeling shitty. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry. I swear, like a sailor. <laughs> PSA oh. for language. <laughs> This is not made for kids. Yes. <laughs> yeah, before you put on YouTube, you have to click that box, not my <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I actually have one, because this is the first time that I felt like I really hung with you. Can you talk about Fedchoktoberfest? <laughs> How that started and what it's all about? Well, one, my husband has a last name that is frequently mispronounced. People like to forget the H, let's just say. But... I notice his name is is funny. And actually, if you see anybody in the U.S. with his name, with the name spelled that way, he, they're related to him. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's actually not the correct spelling. Uh, the correct spelling is like F-E-T-C-Z-Y-K or something. Yeah, it's uh, somewhere Eastern European. But anyway, so this is a phonetic spelling of his name, which shouldn't be hard for people to pronounce. But anyway, I digress. A few years ago, I put the two words together, Fedchoktoberfest, and we we usually had like one party a year. And I was like, that's what we're doing. We're having Fedchoktoberfest. And he thought it was dumb. He didn't want it because he doesn't like a lot of attention. I'm like, nah, we're doing it. <laughs> it's kind of like when I said, um, I came home and said, I heard this tune called Big Long Sliding Thing. I'm going to sing it. And John was like, you're not a singer. I'm like, nah, I'm doing it. <laughs> so um yeah and it's become a thing and you know every year we we invite more people and every year we forget more people <laughs> so i it's a it's been really fun like we have swag now and we found this german butcher in ridgewood queens that makes their own sausage in-house and we buy their sauerkraut that's fermenting and buckets in the like it is insane. The guy that makes the sausages, his name is Herbie. It's like, it's a serious production. We spent a lot of money on, on Fetch Oktoberfest. And there's like, I think maybe throughout the day, there's like 80 people that come to, through the, the house. One year we had Alex Isles from LA. He came out. Uh, my friend Laura Brennis came out also from LA. Uh, Dave Taylor's been, you know, Elliot Mason. I, they have yet to make an appearance, but they live just down the street. The Masons live down the street, like Elliot and Brad. You can't throw a rock without hitting a trombone player in, in Astoria, so. It's like a little hub for a trombone, I've noticed. Especially I mean, other, that strip. Other instruments do come up, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One last question because i imagine it's already difficult to be married to a jazz player what is it like being married specifically to someone who plays because he also doubles on bass drumone as well correct well okay <laughs> we can get real okay i had to have surgery in uh 2015 on my hip and it made it impossible to like get to work because on our train line, there's no elevators or escalators. Mm -hmm. So John subbed for me at my show for a month. So he had to learn 32 measures of bass trombone. So he only plays 32 measures of bass trombone, but it was just so I wouldn't lose my health insurance mm -hmm. because I had to be out for a month, but that would have meant that I lost my health insurance because you're uh, with the way our union is, you have to get so many contributions. I don't know. We've never talked about this. It's never come up, but with John, like 
as soon as I started dating him, I was like, I'm never playing in his band because I was like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get a gig that way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get gigs because I'm married to John. That was the thing. Um, I have gotten two gigs because I've married, been married to John and I eventually did play in his band. But the, for a long time, I was like, he would ask me to play. I was like, well, did you ask Jeff Nelson? Because George Flynn couldn't make it. I said, did you ask Jeff Nelson? He's like, no. I said, well, then you ask him. He's played in a band before. I just didn't want to get gigs that way because I know how people talk. Mm -hmm. People say stuff anyway, but what he and I do is so different outside of my band. I mean, he's helped me a lot, obviously, with with my band because he's been a band leader for so long and he's written you know he did not get paid to produce my album and it sounds amazing <laughs> and so I did use him that way but um being married to him like is never feels like a competition because he is my biggest fan I'm his biggest fan and anytime we need each other we're you know there if one of us is freaking out the other one's all right ready to go, ready to help. The only time it gets weird, I think, is when we can get both get like a little down about work or whatever, but it's never at each other. That's the one advantage because what we do is so different. I do remember one thing though, like uh, he wrote a tune or he arranged a tune for me and I have all the hard parts. So I'm sitting here going, I'm going to count the tune off. And he's thinking, I wrote the tune. I'm going to count the tune off. And the drummer's like, what do I, what do I do? <laughs> So that's the only like weird thing that's really happened. <laughs> so you're talking about people already talk about stuff. Do you think that has anything to do with, I mean, because that question and questions like that is always, I find people will ask specifically because you're a woman. Yeah. Like, how did you get on this gig? Yeah. Kind of a thing. Like assuming that someone had to get you on it when, yeah. you know, if it was another dude, it would just be, oh, you're friends with so-and-so. Yeah. Whereas when you're a woman, oh, it's because you're sleeping with so-and-so. And that's hard. It happens a lot less now because I'm married. Mm -hmm. um, and even when I was with somebody, it didn't happen a lot. But uh, when I was single, yeah, it happened a lot. And that sucks, especially when it comes from people that are your friends. And usually, it, I think people, it's usually saying more about them than it is about you. It's more like they're pissed that they didn't call, get called for a gig or something. Right? Maybe rightly so. But, you know, for whatever reason, I would, I would never say that to somebody. I mean, mm -hmm. I might be disappointed that I didn't get called for a gig, but I would never go to the person and be like, well, who'd you blow to get that gig? Mm -hmm. You know, never do that. That's just me. <laughs> it is. Well, this was a lot. We, we got a lot of stuff. We got, there was a lot, a lot of heavy. Diarrhea of the mouth. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you for having me. I love and respect you guys so much. And thanks for doing this. It has been entertainment for me the past couple of weeks. And I really appreciate it. we all could use more of this type of stuff. So keep doing oh, it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's been just as fun for us to have people on and, and hear you guys talk because the, the people that we're asking are our heroes. Yes. And we want to hear from you. So the fact that we're streaming it is because we know everyone else wants to hear, but this is something we would do regardless. So thank well, you so much for giving us your time. Can I say one last thing? Mm -hmm. Everybody should subscribe to Gina and Chris because they are amazing voices in the world of <laughs> the trombone and you should hear all the things that they're doing. So after you subscribe to me, go and subscribe to them. <laughs> thank you so much. That means a lot. Yes. I mean it. You guys, I am inspired by watching you guys Oh, my heart. <laughs> okay, so with that beautiful note, we're going to wrap it up. 
Uh, remember, guys, to subscribe to Jen on YouTube, to get on her website, to subscribe to her newsletter, to hear more about all the stuff going on. And stay tuned because next week we also have a guest. So uh, leave a comment if you can guess who it's going to be. That's right. Bye, guys.